the last time we were together on Sunday night, we looked at the qualifications for the pastor, and tonight we'll look at the qualification for deacons. So let me begin with a pop quiz. What is the fundamental responsibility of a deacon? How would you respond to, to that, uh, that, that question? The fundamental responsibility. Some people might say that their primary responsibility is to serve the Lord's Supper. Certainly they do that. Other people might say that their primary responsibility is to serve as trustees of the church. And particularly at our church, that's exactly what they do. Still others might say that their primary responsibility is to organize church events. And as alarming as it may be, none of those are the deacon's fundamental responsibilities. And in our passage tonight, in 1 Timothy, we're given the qualifications for who can be a deacon in the church. And we're given some clues to what their purpose is. But I think their purpose is most clearly seen in their initial institution. So would you turn back to save your place here. We're going to start in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, when the first deacons were instituted in the local church. Let's think about the context of of what we're about to look at here. The church is growing. In chapter 4, verse 4, there's 5,000 men that are part of the church, that are members of the church. And then the number was increasing every day, according to chapter 5, verse 14. And so perhaps at this point in the church at Jerusalem, you have as many as twenty to 50,000 people just in one church. The other thing that we need to think about in, with regard to the context of Acts 6 is that the widows were feeling neglected. Uh, we're going to see that in verse 1. That is, that there's these two groups of widows, the Greek-speaking widows and the Aramaic-speaking widows, and they were at, at odds with each other. And the other in, uh, a point of, of context that we need to consider is that the apostles recognized the problem They see the problem as serious, but they recognize that they have a more important responsibility uh, than caring for widows, even though that's not unimportant. That is their responsibility to, to the Word of God, to preach and to pray. So it is in this setting that the first seven deacons are chosen for the church. In a setting of division and neglect, the office of deacons is instituted in order to promote internal unity and to make sure that everyone's needs being met. So let me read uh, beginning in verse 1 of Acts 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, uh, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So the fundamental responsibility here of the deacons is, I would say it this way, is to support the spiritual well-being of the church. 
And they do this by primarily by allowing the pastor to give his time to the Word and to prayer. Notice again, verse 2, that the apostles say, it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word in order to serve tables, in order to settle this conflict. This conflict is important. We're not saying it's unimportant. Taking care of widows is critical. But we have a clear responsibility to serve or present the Word of God to the people, and we can't give that up. And then in verse 4, when they say to choose seven men from among you, verse 4 says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So deacons are set up initially in Acts 6, and I think still today in 1 Timothy 3 and today, they are here in the church. They are designed by God in order to support the spiritual well-being of the church. And they do this by promoting internal unity, by helping to support the work of the pastor, which is to preach and to pray. You see, the spiritual well-being of the church here in Acts was being compromised with this conflict that had arisen. And so the deacons were chosen in order to be shock absorbers or we could say mufflers. And I'm going to argue that, that they promote spiritual well-being of the church by promoting unity, by te- the temporal care of, of the needs in the church, and then by supporting the pastor with his responsibility of oversight and direction. So turn back to 1 Timothy 3. In the selection of deacons, by the way, I, I should have pointed out while we were still there, but in the selection of deacons, the leaders were the ones who offered direction, but they didn't actually choose the deacons. The people, the congregation chose the deacons, verse 5 of Acts 6. And w- one other thing that you probably noticed as we were reading through is that the deacons were supposed to be men of godly character. They were men of good reputation, verse 3, full of the Spirit, in verse 3 and verse 5, full of wisdom, verse 3, full of faith, verse 5. And so this godly character was expected of the initial deacons, and I would say expected of the deacons some 30 years later in 1 Timothy 3, and also for, for our church as well. So let me read our passage here in 1 Timothy 3 and see what's, what God expects of the deacons uh, of the church at Ephesus and, and the church here in Royal Oak. Beginning in verse 8. This is the word of God. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These men also must first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Um, So the purpose of deacons from Acts 6, deacons support the spiritual well-being of the church by promoting unity through temporal care and by supporting the pastor and his work to preach and pray. Um, The theme here in our text is that the church needs deacons who are serious-minded, unity-promoting servants. People who are willing to, uh, to stand up for what they believe, to, to know what they believe, and then support the work of the church. So before we get into the qualifications for deacons, let's skip down to verse 11 and begin with the, the qualifications for what I would call deaconesses, which is what I think Paul is talking about here. In verse 11, he says, Women must likewise be dignified, 
not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So just a short little uh, verse, sentence, that talks about what these women were required to do. And um, the first thing that we need to recognize uh, about this office of, of deacons before we get to this, let me just mention something before we get to this uh, verse 11. And that is that, notice verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, so they need to be men. And then verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife. So both of those show us that deacons are to be men. It's also masculine in the, the Greek. And so this, this category of people in verse 11 are not men, they're women. And, and so in the middle of talking about deacons and their qualifications, Paul takes one sentence to talk about women and their qualifications. And there are two main interpretations for who these women are. Some people believe that they're wives of deacons, that the deacons have these responsibilities and their wives also have these responsibilities in verse 11. And the fact is that the Greek word, the reason for this translation is that the Greek word that is translated women here in verse 11 in the New American Standard can also be translated as wives, which is what the King James does. However, the problem with this view is that in the King James Version, they add the word their, T-H-E-I-R, their wives. So the, the wives of the deacons must likewise be women who are dignified and not malicious gossips and so on. The problem with that view is that the word their is not in the original Greek. It's not in any of the manuscripts. So they, the, the King James Version supplied that word to try to make sense of what this word, which could be wives or women, uh, is. And in that sense, they interpreted it for us. But in supplying the word, I think they actually missed the meaning of the original. And that's why I would call this, I, I would call these women helpers of deacons or deaconesses. And they, that is that these are women who are used in the church to help the pastor and deacons in their promotion of the spiritual well-being of the church. And they do this by helping with the temporal care of the needs of the church. And they do this by helping to support um, the work of the pastor to, to preach and to pray. They're given qualifications that will help them in the service of the church. And the reason that I think that these are helpers of deacons or wives of, uh, instead of wives of deacons is because of this word here in verse 11. Women must likewise. Paul seems to be starting a new qualification rather than continuing on with what the, the deacons and their wives must do. Instead, verse 8, notice he says deacons likewise. So he gives this list in verses 1 through 7 of what pa uh, pastors ought to be. And then deacons likewise have to be men of character. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, and here's a third category of people. And that is these deaconesses. And they likewise ought to, to be women of character. Another reason I think that this is um, a position in the church rather than wives of deacons and their requirements is because in Romans 16.1, Phoebe is called a deaconess. She's, she's called a servant in this, this way. Now presently, our church doesn't have any formal deaconesses. Um, unlike the office of deacon and pastor, I would suggest from a biblical perspective that the position of deaconess is not required, but is allowed. But whenever there is a formal position of deaconess, these three things must be true of the ladies. They cannot be slanderous. That is, they misrepresent other people. They're constantly uh, using their tongue as a sword. Second, they must be sober. Okay, they, they must, be, um, must be temperate, as the text says, and they must be trustworthy. They have to be faithful in all things. 
So now that we've gotten that covered, let's get back to the deacons, which I think is the main focus of the text. The service of deacons in verses 8 through 13. The word deacon means what? Any ideas? Servant, right? The word deacon is actually just a transliteration of the Greek dekanos, dekanos, which is um, a Greek word that just means to serve. In fact, it, it's the same Greek word root that that we have um, that comes to our word deacon is the same word that's translated in other areas as to serve and servant and service. For example, I'll, I'll supply the word deacon instead of servant. In, in these two passages from the New Testament that use the same Greek word. Mark 10, 43-45, Whoever wants to be great, Jesus said, must be your deacon. The Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life. So that kind of gives you the sense of that Greek word and how it's used in other places. Luke 22, 27, For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who deacons? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who deacons. So Jesus is saying, look at me as the exemplar of what it means to serve. I am the, the, the exemplar, the, the perfect standard for what a deacon ought to look like. And in reality, all of us are called to deacon the church. All of us are called to serve the church. In fact, if, as we look through these qualifications, what you're going to find is that besides the qualification that the man must be a husband of one wife, all of these other qualifications are required of every single Christian. And the husband of one wife is required of every, every husband, right? So every Christian is called to meet these qualifications. And so the qualifications that you see here are not unique to a deacon, but they must describe him. They must be something that, that this person excels at. The office of deacon, uh, D.A. Carson once wrote that the, the remarkable thing about the qualifications of deacons is that they're so unremarkable. There's nothing special about them. They're just simply qualifications that we all have as Christians. And so it, the deacons ought to be people who are, as Acts 6 called them, men of the Spirit, men of wisdom, um, men of character, people who are just faithful in the things that they're supposed to be doing. Paul breaks these up into uh, several categories of expectations. First, personal qualifications um, in verses 8 and 9. Personal qualifications. And that, it, that includes that he is dignified, he is self-controlled in three ways, and then that he is faith-filled in verse 9. First, deacons must be men of dignity or men of weight, men of gravity. Not talking about heavy men. They're, they're, they're serious-minded men about spiritual things. They're, they're worthy of respect because they think deeply about the Scriptures and about the truths of God. Their conduct and their speech are marked by dignity and seriousness. The initial qualification, then, this dignity is followed by three negatives. Not double-tongued, not given to wine, and not greedy. So I would put all these under the category of self-controlled. Let's see if I yeah, have those. So self-controlled, that he is self-controlled with regard to his tongue. That he is sincere. He's not hypocritical. He's not a man who speaks out of both sides of his mouth or discloses confidential information. He's not giving two different stories to two different people. He is self-controlled with regard to his tongue. Second, he is temperate with regard to or self-controlled with regard to alcohol. The text says that he must not be addicted to, um, he must not be addicted to wine. 
not preoccupied with alcohol, not like the, the man in Proverbs who's constantly staring at the, the glass wondering when he can get his next drink. Uh, instead, he needs to be self-controlled, recognizing that his inhibitions need to be controlled by the Spirit, not by, by, uh, by alcohol. Thirdly, he must be self-controlled with regard to money. He's content. He's not greedy of sordid gain. His, he, his living comes by honest means. He's not a thief. He's not a deceiver so that he can try to get something he didn't work for. And this is important because of some of the responsibilities that he's going to have in the church to help care for the needs. Think about Acts 6, some of the needs they had to care for. Right? They're handling money and how it's being dispersed to the widows. So a man that's greedy of sordid gain might be tempted to take some of that money for himself, to pilfer some of that like a Judas type. And so in some capacity, he's going to have to handle the finances of the church. And so there seems to be an implication that he must not be driven in life by money or the love of it. So he's dignified, he's self-controlled. And then verse 9, he must be faith-filled. But instead of these three negative things, he's holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. What is this mystery of faith? It seems to be a treasure that's, that's being embraced. A mystery is not something in the Scriptures. A mystery is not something that's unknowable or something you know, we have to figure out by clues. But something that was previously unknown but now is known. So the, the, what we know about Jesus Christ, that He is the Messiah, that's the mystery of faith, has now been revealed to us through the apostles. And... So he must hold to this. He must embrace it. The deacon must be one who is serious about the Scriptures and who holds with deep faith to the, the truth of God's Word. And this is consistent with verse 15 that we'll look at next time that, that the church as a whole is the pillar and support of the truth. And so it makes sense that those who are uh, called to serve the church would also hold to that same truth. Pastors must also be able to embrace the faith and they must be able to teach it to others. Deacons, however, are not required to, to, to be able to teach the mystery of faith. They don't have to be able to explain it to other people, but they must show that they have embraced it. That's why this last phrase is in here in verse 9, with a clear conscience. That he must embrace it, he must know it, and he must live by it, so that his conscience will not con- condemn him when he turns against this, break, this faith that he's supposed to embrace. So it's a life that is a consistent life that's holding on to the mystery of faith and then living it out with a clear conscience. And this is consistent with Acts 6, verse 5 and the description of Stephen that he is a man full of faith. So why would we not be surprised, or we should not be surprised, I should say, in, in 1 Timothy 3 that a deacon should be one who's full of the faith. He's full of the mystery of faith like Stephen was. So Paul gives first the personal qualifications. Then he gives second the requirement for testing in verse 10. He cannot be untested. Similar to the the office of the pastor that he cannot be a new convert. This one is that he has to to first be tested before he can become a deacon. Now this doesn't mean a formal written test or, or something or some kind of obstacle course out in the parking lot. The office of deacon, however, is not a training ground. It's not the place to try out a new convert or someone who has just um, all of a sudden decided that they've turned away from, from the, their sin and now they're going to they're, they're gonna show themselves as a person with great business acumen and someone who can really help the church. 
we need to test the person as a church to make sure that they actually do have spiritual character. A deacon must have shown himself to be faithful in a non-official capacity. So in a small deacon sense, right? We all, I'm going to argue that we all have responsibility to deacon the church in a small d kind of way. But, but before they can become a large d, an actual official position deacon, they need to make sure, or we need to make sure that they're, they're serving in a non-official way when no one's looking or, or when, when the name's not getting posted on the board or something like that. In other words, we're looking for men that are already deaconing even if they're doing it in a non-official capacity. Jesus said those who are faithful in little will be faithful in much. So we shouldn't expect someone who is unfaithful in little things to all of a sudden, oh, well, maybe when, if we put him in, the, if we give him this position of deacon, then, then maybe then they'll get, start to get serious about spiritual things and then they'll really help the church. It's not the way it works, is it? Those who are unfaithful in little will also be unfaithful in much. Notice how high of a calling this is in verse 9, uh, I'm sorry, the end of verse 10. And let them serve as deacons if, here's another qualifications, maybe this, this has to do with the kind of testing that we need to have, which is they must be beyond reproach. So only if they are beyond reproach should we allow them to be deacon. The phrase above reproach or beyond reproach comes from one Greek word which means blamelessness and unblemished reputation. It doesn't mean perfect or unright. It's the same qualification that a pastor has. He must be above reproach. In fact, the fundamental qualification of a pastor is that he is above reproach. Instead, it means that he, he will not be able to have a charge um, stick to him because he's of such high character. It's the fundamental uh, qualification of the pastor, and it's a significant qualification for the deacons. And it's important for deacons to have such high character because with their responsibility of handling conflict, resolving conflict, handling sensitive information, there will be plenty of temptations for them to, to turn away, to give up that information or to, to turn against some, um, some people. And, and there will also be plenty of opportunities for them to have uh, unfounded or illegitimate charges laid against them. And so they need to be able to be able to have uh, character rather than lash out at those people and and um, and uh, and burst out in anger. They they respond with godliness and patience and and so on. So they first need to be tested. Then in verse 12, there are domestic qualifications. Domestic qualifications: deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own household. So two parts of this: husband of one wife and good manager at home. What does it mean to be a husband of one wife? As I mentioned two weeks ago, there are three main views among scholars as to what this means, so please allow me to review them. It could mean that he can only have one wife at a time. In other words, he, has, he cannot be a polygamist. Okay? It, it means at least that. Okay? We would not allow at our church, I don't think the Scriptures uh, allow it, I know the Scriptures don't allow, for a polygamist to be a deacon or a pastor. Second option is that it could mean that he could never have been divorced. So any person who has been divorced in the past could never be a deacon. And maybe that's what Paul is saying here. I don't think that that fits the context. Um, think about the timing of the rest of the qualifications as I mentioned with the office of the pastor. What, when are the qualifications required of them? Is it some, are all of these qualifications, just think about 8 through 13, 
are all these required of them for their entire past, all the way up until their present? Or are these things that are required for their present? So, for example, Paul's not saying that a deacon could never have been double-tongued. I mean, could we have a person who used to be double-tongued and who has repented and believed and who now has control over his tongue in some sense that now is in a position to, to take the office of deacon? Absolutely we could. How about, um, could, is the requirement that he's not fond of sordid gain, is that he never loved money? I mean, who would ever be able to fill the office of deacon if, if these were, were requirements from the time that they were born? So I would suggest to you that it's not that he was never divorced or that he was never uh, a womanizer or that he was never a polygamist, although those things might say something about their present character, but, but I don't think that's the qualification. Instead, he's saying uh, what, what I think the text means, and that is that he must be a faithful husband. That he is one now. He's not a, he's not a polygamist now. He's not a womanizer now. And he is the husband, a faithful husband of one wife now. That's the point. And the main reason I think that is because this phrase, husband of one wife, is literally translated from the Greek, of one woman man. He's a one woman kind of man. So I think that the idea is that a deacon must be a faithful husband. That is, that he is solely committed to his wife. He doesn't have a crooked eye. That is, constantly looking for a way out or for another avenue of pleasure outside of his own marriage. So Paul is saying, if a man is married, he must be a faithful husband. I don't think he's saying that a deacon must be married, by the way. Um, but I, he's saying if he is married, he needs, to be, he needs to be a faithful husband and a faithful father. So the second part of that, this, this domestic qualification at the end of verse 12, is that he must be a good manager at home. He must manage his household well. Look back up to verse 5. Paul gives the same requirement for the pastor, and then he says in verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how, he, how will he take care of the church of God? So he could have just taken that statement and restated it down in the deacon section, but I think because he said it so recently that he doesn't have to restate it. So that's the point. The proving grounds for being able to serve well in the church and to manage well, there's actually a kind of management that deacons have, even though their primary responsibility is to serve, there is a kind of management oversight that they're giving uh, uh, underneath the direction of the pastor, but, but they do have some kind of management that they have. And the proving grounds for that is the home. So if, if a man's not faithful in his home with regard to how he manages his own household, if, if, um, if he's not leading his wife and his children well, then he should not be a deacon, at least at this time. Again, I think these are present qualifications, so a guy can... A guy can improve in that area and get to a place where he moves into a place of qualification. There is management that's required of deacons. I mean, think about it. They have a responsibility to take this money and pass it off to the the widows who are in need. So they have responsibility for money. They have responsibility to settle some conflict. and, And so in that sense, there is this management expectation. In verse 13, Paul gives rewards for service. A deacon who serves well is promised two things from God. See if you can see those in the verse 
First, a high standing in the middle of the verse, in the middle of the verse, and then second, great confidence. So he says, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This high standing, I think, has to do with respect and appreciation that he receives from the church. That is, that that our church ought to respect and appreciate the deacons who serve our church. I mean, think about it. They don't get paid to minister to your needs. They spend many hours every week thinking about and working to resolve conflict in the church and work to make this place a a gathering where we can maintain unity and pursue holiness and peace. And, And just like many areas of service in the church, it can often be a thankless job. But what should happen is that when they serve our church, and when they serve our church well, uh, they, they should receive some kind of respect and appreciation from our church. And when they do, when they receive that kind of positive affirmation that what they're doing is good and helpful for the work of God here in this place, then it should give them this second uh, promise, which is great confidence. That they would have boldness and assurance to speak and act and kind of take their position to the next level, take their responsibility to the next level. Like now that I know that this is actually valuable and purposeful for the work of God and people um, recognize it to some degree and, and really, frankly, whether they do or not, I'm ready to take the next step and move on into to this confidence that, that leads me to serve even better. I mean, isn't this the case that when you do, do your work well and, and you're respected and appreciated for your work that it actually builds confidence in you to continue to do your job well and, and move on to the next level? That is, that, that you see that in the big scheme of things, God is working out uh, the gospel through me, not in a prideful way, but, but he, He's actually accomplishing things through the work that I'm doing here at the church. And as a result, I want to do even more. I want to build on that, build on what I know and what I've seen. Deacons are servants. That's what deacons means. They're servants designed by God to support the spiritual well-being of the church. And they do this in two primary ways. They promote unity where there's conflict by caring for the temporal and physical needs of the church. And then they support the work of the pastor so that he can stay focused on what is most important to his, his calling. They are not creators of conflict, but they are resolvers of conflict. They are not noisemakers, but they are mufflers. They're working to bring peace where there is war. They're working to bring unity where there's division. And so they take into account the things that are going on in the church and try to to, to cover those responsibilities so that those kinds of things are not drawing our attention away, both mine and yours, uh, from what we are supposed to be doing. So three applications for us from this passage. Number one, be a small d deacon yourself. Be a small d deacon yourself. Not for the purpose of recognition, but in order to serve the church. Jesus was the de- a deacon in the greatest sense. That he served the church. He gave his life for the church. And all of us as Christians are called to meet these qualifications. And so we should seek to deacon the church in the best way that we possibly can. And we, might, we might think, well, you know, they're kind of there to to settle conflicts and to be the shock absorber. So if they're going to do that, then maybe I need to be the one that creates the mess, right, spiritually or or whatever. 
I mean, they, they're, they're going to take care, or, or I'll just kind of live my life however I want, and whatever happens, happens. And that's not the way we ought to think. We ought to think, you know what, my responsibility is to help unify the church, help to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, which is a command for all Christians in Ephesians. And so we all need to seek to deacon the church in the best way that we can. Secondly, I would say that, that we ought to be praying for our deacons. We might minimize their responsibility and think, well, you know, what, what do they do? They meet a couple, you know, a couple times a year and, and they, now they're counting money and, and what else do they do? But they actually have this responsibility to, to promote the spiritual well-being of the church by helping to support and promote unity, taking care of the temporal and physical needs, and also helping to make sure that the preaching of the Word is able to be focused on. So pray that God would protect them. Pray that God would use them and to, to, and to affirm them in their work so that they would have this greater confidence to do even more for our church. Pray that God would protect them from disqualification. We need godly men to serve our church. We need uh, godly men to, to lead in our church in this way. I mean, whether you think about it or not, we look up to the deacons of the church um, because we see them in an official role that's established by God and, and we in some way respect them just for that. And so we should pray that God would, would raise up more men like them and that he would continue to help the ones that we currently have serving in an official capacity. So pray for our current deacons. And then thirdly, uh, look for future deacons. At the end of the year, I make a plea to you to nominate men who are already deaconing without the title, who are already satisfying all these qualifications. It's not a popularity contest. It's not about who has good business acumen. It's not about you know who, who makes the best friends of um, whoever, but, but rather it's a serious office that requires serious thought and prayer on the part of our church, and we should not take it lightly or punt on our responsibility to nominate men who would fill these roles. So, so you might be saying, well, you know, someone else is going to nominate, and it seems like everybody, somebody gets nominated all the time. And it's true, they will get nominated. Some, we, we have to nominate somebody because we need deacons to serve. But, but your responsibility as a congregation is to be looking for people who are fitting the qualifications already and who would serve well in our church a serious office that requires serious thought on our part. And we would do well to, to take some time to think and pray through that and, and offer up names that would be a reflection of our Savior who, uh, if he were here in that role, would serve in the best way possible. We want, we want to see men who are willing to follow in those kinds of footsteps. Would you pray with me? Father, thankful for the establishment and the structure that you've put together in the local church to allow us to be able to accomplish your will in this place and, and in this area. Lord, we want to see the sound of the gospel and the picture of the gospel go out uh, from our area through uh, Royal Oak and the surrounding cities and then through the parts of the earth where we have missionaries and um, we know that that cannot happen if the deacons are not working in, in their roles to help um, muffle the, the conflict that comes up. Lord, we are 
a congregation made up of sinners who are led by uh, leaders who are sinners, and so we will not be free from conflict for as long as we live, but, but we ought to pursue that. We ought to be pursuing this peaceful, um, peaceful work uh, and, and um, meeting together and, and part of the, the, maybe the most important conduit of accomplishing that purpose comes through the deacons and their role. And so we pray that you would just, uh, Lord, give them the affirmation that they need to continue to do their job and, and a high standing and great confidence to do more for the sake of our church. Thankful for how they watch out for the, the challenges that arise and think through some of the difficulties that, that come to our church. And we pray that each of us would um, recognize their their importance, but also see our own importance in, in using our spiritual gifts to care for the needs of the church. And I pray that, that each of us would seek to, to serve one another so that this body would be um, pleasing to you in every way. We pray for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.